And from the EFF's perspective, let's say they do get the call from the ANC saying, guys, you know, come join a government with us. It'll be great. The EFF will say, well, you've just dropped below 50%. Your trend is only going one way, that is down. Are we going to tie ourselves to the sinking ship to be pulled down to the ocean ground, to the ocean floor? Not a good idea. We'll, we'll rather do our own thing. We've got a brand. We've got a message. We know what we want. We're strategically clear. We're not going to go get into bed with this mess that is the ANC. Hello, my name is Donald, and welcome to the number one media company, Worldview. At Worldview, we explore everyone's perspectives on all things that come broad in our Worldview. Today, we're talking with John Andrus. John holds an MBA and a PhD in commerce and economics from a leading German business school, as well as, well as a master's degree in translation studies from the University of Witwatersrand. John has extensive work experience in business, policy research, and project management. He is the CEO-elect of the IRR and the incoming director of the Center for Risk Analysis. The IRR is a public policy think tank established in 1929 to promote human rights in South Africa. The Center for Risk Analysis was established in 2010 and advises on global and South African polit political, economic, social and policy risk. John has offered a book on change management in cities and presents the CRA's risk alert written and audio note every Monday morning at 7 a.m. John, welcome to the show. Cool. Thank you very much, Donald, for inviting me. Yeah, so this is going to be a fascinating interview. John, just before we start, two quick questions because your bio is very interesting. A master's degree in translation studies. What, what does that entail? Uh, so the background is that my parents are both German, and I studied in Germany, so I speak German quite well. Um, and then I also speak Spanish because my wife is from Venezuela. And so I spent quite a lot of time translating part-time between English, Spanish, and German, and then decided to get a qualification many years after I'd started working as a translator. And that is what I did uh, between 2018 and 2020. Okay, so it's basically just a translator to become a translator degree or a master's degree. Yeah, um, so the, the translation studies degree is actually not about learning to translate, um, but it, it teaches you about the theory of translation. So what, what goes into thinking about how translators work. Um, so it's quite academic, it's, it's quite theoretical, but it's really useful if you've got the practical experience already, uh, because it, it sort of explains different approaches, what works, what doesn't work, um, and it's super useful. Mm, that's interesting. And uh, second question, quickly, the CEO elect, wh what does that mean? It almost sounds like you've just been elected a president. So how does that work? <laughs> well, we weren't quite sure what to call it. Um, but the background is that the current CEO of the IRR, Franz Kronje, um, uh, announced that he was going to step down from the role um, in the first quarter of this year, second quarter of this year. Um, the search for a successor then started. Um, and eventually I was appointed as France's successor. Um, and now we are both working at the IRR and have been doing so for the past uh, over half a year. And so it's currently got two CEOs, one incoming, one outgoing, and I'm the incoming CEO. Uh, and from 1st of January, um, France will be out and I'll be in. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to some very exciting times at the IRR. Hmm. I, I hope you attend this inauguration, but um, <laughs> as, as opposed to Trump. But uh, okay, so first question on these juicy subjects, um, 
if we come to the local election, I've heard a lot of ANC members like Fakile Mbalula, the campaign manager, saying that the votes the ANC lost in this local election, they're going to come back. It's, they love the ANC. They just, they just sent out a warning shot. So do you think that's the case? Because I believe that's a very arrogant position to hold. But yeah, what, what's your opinion? I think there's a grain of, grain of truth in what uh, Fikile Mbalula said, in the sense that uh, where we've tracked trends over time, we noticed that when South Africa was doing well economically, when it was creating jobs, when the economy was growing, then support for the ANC would rise as well. Um, and then when the economy stopped growing over the last 10, 15 years or so, and joblessness increased and unhappiness increased in the population, support for the ANC went down as well. Very gradually, but still visibly. Um, but what is far more important in this development is that many voters opted to stay out of the election. So the, the turnout declined. And we saw that with these local government elections as well. And really what this is, is an expression of frustration and discontent of the voters with the ruling party. The question is whether they are willing and able to transfer their allegiance, their loyalty to another party. And that is something that I think has been a very gradual process over time. Uh, so certainly the ANC commands a lot of affection and loyalty from its members and supporters because of the historical role which it has played. But that credit is being used up bit by bit. Um, and of course, now voters are saying, well, you know, what, what else have you got to offer us? What, what have you got that's new? Uh, you know, can you show us your job creation credentials? Can you show us your performance on infrastructure, on electricity, on water? And all of that is not looking so good. So perhaps we must actually now, sadly, look for a different party to support. And I think that's what's happening at the moment. Um, so I think it was a warning shot across the bow. That's quite true. But I by no means think that it is inevitable that ANC voters will return to the fold. I think they will only do that if the uh, performance of the economy and of government improves. And of that, I think the prospects are very, very slim at the moment. What is your opinion of a person like Fakile Mbalula? A lot of people say his, his um, bark is worse than his bite, that he, he has a track record of saying a lot of things, but not doing a lot. So what is your opinion of that guy? Well, Fakile Mbalula has occupied quite a, a few ministerial roles. I think not with particularly great distinction. But I think that he has done rather well as elections or campaign manager for the ANC. You know, this is not the first election campaign that he managed. He's managed several before. And if you will cast your mind back, you will recall that in the run-up to those previous elections, commentators were always speculating about decline and support for the ANC coming. And often you will get the ANC you know, uh, producing a last-minute surge and getting the numbers up, getting the numbers out, and still coming in with a really respectable and decent result. And I think, you know, these elections in 2021 really were the first ones where that didn't quite work out. Um, you know, these were historical elections because the ANC for the first time came in below 50%. And, uh, you know, pulling out all the stops didn't work this time around. Um, if you think of the fact that there was load shedding the week before the elections, you know, if there's one week in a five-year cycle where there must be no load shedding, it is the one week before the elections if you're the government. And that means during that week, if the power goes out, you burn the office furniture, you do whatever it takes, you make sure the power stays on because otherwise the voters will run away from you. And uh, you know, this in this time, it wasn't possible to keep the lights on. And I think that is just an illustration of how dire the situation of ESCOM is. Um, and it, it really reflected then in the, uh, the election outcome for the ANC. Do you also think that um, it was a bad choice by the ANC or 
Okay, I can't remember. Okay, yeah, it was the ANC. And Kosa Sun had Lamini Zuma. It's, yeah, it's a long name. We decided yeah. to hold the election on the Monday. Was all that also a bad choice? I think the ANC got caught a little bit off guard. Um, so there was a recent uh, uh, statements by Fikula Mbalula were published where he said that their polling had indicated that support for the ANC had declined to as low as 38%. And we know that um, there were efforts to postpone the elections. Um, the reason given for those efforts was that COVID was too dangerous and it would not be possible to campaign safely or even to vote safely. And therefore, an application was made to the Constitutional Court to condone a pro, uh, uh, an extension, a postponement of the elections beyond what is constitutionally permitted. Uh, and that would have given the ANC more time to you know, get its, its house in order, to get its act together, and maybe to still pull off that last minute surge. I think the ANC would have been quite surprised at the fact that the Constitutional Court did not grant the, the postponement. And then they really had to scramble in order to you know, get, get everything together and still get a campaign um, up and rolling. Um, and I think that the uh, minister's proclamation of the election date on a Monday uh, was out of the ordinary, as was the fact that there was only one registration weekend, usually there are two. Uh, and all of this contributed, I think, to a, a, an election that was different from the elections that we had before. But um, the result was not very favorable to the ANC, as we know. So, John, um, the EFF and the Action SA have collaborated to make the DA mayors to to enable there to be DA mayors in Ikuruleni, Johannesburg, and Pretoria. Do you think they will hold these mayors to ransom? And that, yeah, it's, eventually the DA will have to resign to, to force those mayors to resign because they can't get anything done. Yeah, that is a possible outcome. Um, I think the, the situation varies from municipality to municipality. Um, in Swane and in Johannesburg, it might be possible for the DA still to build a majority government rather than a minority, which, if it is able to do so, means that it would not be um, beholden to the EFF or dependent on its support to pass budgets, for example. In Ekoruleni, I think that is mathematically not possible. Um, and there, certainly, the EFF, I think, will try to play out the leverage, the power it holds over the DA um, government. It will try to uh, negotiate for concessions to it, um, maybe even at the, at the national sphere. But I think that at this stage, the DA has been so um, um, burned by the experience of governing with EFF support uh, in the aftermath of the 2016 elections, that it will rather relinquish power than um, cede its authority to the demands of the EFF. And that I think would be a perfectly acceptable, acceptable outcome. You know, if the DA can come out of it with its uh, head held high, and say, look, you know, we were put into government, we did our best to govern, but uh, unfortunately our, our attempts were spoiled by the EFF. You know, sorry voters, next time give us a bigger majority, then we can do a better job. That's, that's a completely legitimate outcome. I think it would be fatal for the DA to make concessions to the EFF. You know, that would be really bad for its brand, uh, not to mention governance per se. So yeah, I think it is a possibility that some of those governments will not last that long, but we might be surprised. Some of them might long, last longer than we expect. I know um, Ellen Zilla has said that they made concessions to the EFF that were fatal in Johannesburg with Herman Mashaba as the mayor, but they did, did they make fatal concessions in any of the other metros like um, Nelson Mandela Bay, that it was really that bad to have the EFF in the coalition? 
Well, I mean, the EFF didn't uh, formally go into coalition, I believe, um, but rather, um, you know, gave it was a supply agreement. So the EFF would lend its votes to the DA um, at moments which it considered to be opportune. Um, but of course, you know, for, from the DA's perspective, this was the equivalent of being held hostage and having a gun to your head with a trigger that could be pulled at any time, which makes governing terribly difficult and very stressful as well. In uh, Nelson Mandela Bay, I think the situation was also that there were other parties involved in the coalitions there as well. I think the UDM played quite a prominent role despite being a very minor uh, part of that government. But when it switched allegiance, then you know that, that government fell apart. Um, it shows you how difficult coalition governments are. Uh, South Africa so far, I think, is not very experienced in managing coalitions, uh, but that experience will come with time. And I think we are certainly entering into the period of coalitions because the era of big parties dominating the political landscape, I think we are putting behind us at quite a rapid pace. So, John, what do you think is the story behind Action Essay and specifically Herman Mashaba? Because it seems he has quite an animosity towards the DA and he's very friendly towards the EFF. So a lot of people say he's perhaps just immature, but could it perhaps be a strategic decision to brand yourself as the anti-white party, so like the anti-DA party? Is, is he perhaps much more political than we think he is? Really hard to say, Donald. Um, I find it hard to speculate about um, Herman Mashaba's state of mind. I also think that he, he and his party don't always um, represent exactly the same positions. So I think the fondness that Herman Mashaba as the leader of Action SA holds for the EFF is not necessarily reflected throughout the party. And that in itself can also create tensions within that party. The um, affection which uh, Herman Mashaba has for the EFF is somewhat puzzling. Um, it might be emotional in nature um, for reasons much as you described, that he might have felt uh, put out or badly treated by the DA while he was mayor and would have found um, solace and comfort in the arms of the EFF. And that, you know, that is a certain debt of, of gratitude that he still feels um, and is a reason why he is close to the EFF or, you know, always willing to give them some consideration, which most of the other opposition parties weren't. Yeah, um, but do you think um, there is a future for Action Essay outside of Gauteng? Because they made a mark in Gauteng. So do you think they can make a big splash in KZN, for example, 2024? Do they have a potential outside of Gauteng? I think they do. Um, so I think Herman Mashaba really achieved a great thing in these elections um, because you know creating a party out of nothing um, and then getting it to a, a, a considerable position in these local government elections really was a, a, a remarkable achievement uh, and it deserves recognition, um, I would say. The reason why I think that he has potential to grow outside of Gauteng, which is his main base at the moment, is that in our polling for many years, we have found that there is a very large share of the South African public that is right of center, so conservative leaning rather than left leaning. And this share of the voting population does not find itself reflected in the political party spectrum. In other words, most of the choices that are available are to the left of, the, of center, um, from the ANC to the EFF, to a variety of smaller parties, but there's very little for, uh, especially a black uh, right of center voter to vote for. And Herman Mashaba is maybe the first one to tap into that um, potential pool, very large voting pool in South Africa. And if he manages to parlay the successes that he has achieved in these local government elections through running with coalitions um, and building out a power base, I think he has a chance to make, make a go of it 
um, in the 2024 elections and to really uh, create a nationwide footprint for his party. I also think that if Herman Mashaba isn't the man who does it, somebody else will do it because that voter pool is out there and it's, it's waiting for somebody to, to tap into it. Do you think it's politically smart of him to bang on the anti-illegal immigration drum that that also taps into that black conservative voter? Yeah, I think this is uh, in, in a way you know, that, that is quite a populist measure and it is in a way also quite Trumpian. Um, so it is the South African equivalent of saying, you know, build a wall in the American case with Mexico. And here, you know, you say the immigrants are the problem. Um, I think it is attractive to a certain segment of the voting population, uh, but it is also a strategy that worries me because Herman Mashaba sort of really skirts the edge between being on the right side of arguments about, you know, the sovereignty and border protection and being on the wrong side where you say foreigners are the problem in the country and therefore foreigners must be made to pay or must be driven out, that sort of thing. And he, I think so far, he's mainly been on the right side, but only just. And that makes me feel quite uneasy. Yeah, he's definitely treading that rope. Um, mm. But oh, oh, so the Democratic Alliance didn't really expand or, okay, they would say they consolidated. That's Salem Ziller's words. But they didn't really expand their voter base. So what do you think is the future of the DA? Can they really grow again? Is there potential to grow again? I think the... The significance of the elections on 1st November wasn't so much what the DA did or didn't do. The significance of the elections was really the, the fragmenting of the opposition vote into smaller parts and also its growth at the same time. So if you look at the 2016 election results and you add together the percentages of all the smaller parties, um, so you exclude the ANC, EFF and DA and just add up all the little ones that remain, you would have gotten a total percentage of 11%. But now in the 2021 elections, that percentage has grown to, 20, uh, to 22%. So it has doubled in the space of five years. And what has happened here is that um, there are more parties serving more constituencies and thereby um, they are able to target their messages to target groups more accurately. And this is, this is the much more important development than the actual share of the vote that the DA got. Um, there's a an analogy that we use to explain what happened in the elections. And we say that you must imagine that the, we're in the African savannah and there's a mighty buffalo that roams the savannah and dominates everything around it. It is accompanied by a little calf. And for many years, commentators have wondered about the lion that was going to emerge to take down the buffalo. And they would look behind every tree and under every bush to see if the young, powerful lion was waiting there, lurking, ready to take the buffalo down. And they've been disappointed at every single election. And the reason why is that there is no lion, but what there is is a pack of wild dogs. And wild dogs are very successful hunters in nature. And they have a much higher kill rate than lions do, as a matter of fact. And what we're seeing now is a pack of wild dogs, which if it can, catch the scent of the buffalo and understand that its objective is to go and eat the buffalo, will be able to bring down the buffalo. And the DA is one of those wild dog, um, one of those wild dogs in the pack, but it's not the only one. And by itself, it can't do much. A single wild dog can't do anything against a buffalo, but a whole pack can. And so the, the idea that we, we see forming out there is that all these smaller parties ranging, you know, from the Freedom Front Plus to ACDP, to Action SA, to the Democratic Alliance, uh, maybe even including the IFP, uh, the UDM, 
the PA and good. All of these parties will now begin to think, oh, there's actually a nice juicy buffalo over the horizon, <laughs> which is there for the taking, but there's only one way to take it, and that is for us to work together. Otherwise, we can't do it. And you know, if, if that idea um, gains traction, if it, if it gains ground, we think there's a realistic prospect that in 2024, you will see the ANC pushed below 50% by a loose coalition of uh, misfits and mismatched organizations that look like they couldn't agree on anything, but they can actually. They've got this one objective, which is to bring down the buffalo. And secondly, they are driven by the same primary values, which are, for example, economic growth as a strategy for the betterment of the country instead of redistribution, which is a very clear distinction between these two groups. Secondly, the rule of law and accountability over corruption. And that's another very clear distinction. And thirdly, um, it is also non-racialism. So if you look at these wild dog pack parties, they don't care very much about the issue of you know, uh, racism and racial discrimination and inequality and so on, because you know, it's important, but really you know, we need jobs and we need growth. We need the infrastructure to work. We need education and health to work. These are very basic things. That's what voters care about. And that is what these parties also care about. So if they can agree on this and focus on their objective, they've got a very bright future ahead of them. Yeah, I, I think what's key there is if they agree to work together. I mean, we'll see that in 2024 between the dynamics of the DA, the EFF, and Action Essay. But um, another thing that didn't make a lot of news is Musi Maimane's, I believe it's one South Africa movement. Do you think he has potential? Do you, have, do you think he has any potential 2024 running as an independent candidate? Well, I must take one step back to the previous point which is that the coalitions in the metros are really a test case for 2024. So it's, you know, we're about 850 days out from the 2024 elections and voters are looking what's going on in governance and politics. They're looking to the metros and they see these wild dog parties and they wonder, will they bite each other? And will they chase each other apart? Will they run away? Will they go and lie down with the buffalo? Or will they actually focus on what they need to achieve? And if they do, I think the message will be very compelling to the voters and of course it will also be very educational for the parties themselves which currently are still focused on you know, working separately and each trying to maximize their own share of the vote instead of realizing that combined they have the potential to take power in 2024. So I think that is you know such an important story and uh, this really is the test case. It's like the training wheels on the bicycle. Go with the training wheels and if you could show me that you can ride the bicycle and take the training wheels off and then you can properly ride the bicycle. So that's that's what we're looking for. Um, in terms of Musi Maimane, um, I think that his political offering is not that clear. Um, so in other words, he was the representative of the independent candidates and some independent candidates did get elected in local government elections. But to me, it was not entirely clear what the purpose of the One SA movement was within that because independents, you know, as their name says, are independent. They're not really bound together into anything. Um, but that having been said, I do think that Musi Maimani himself is a very charismatic um, leader. Um, and it would be a mistake to write him off in the political scene. Um, you know, if, if he finds the right niche for him, then I think he can go far. And possibly that niche would be a, a conservative Christian party, um, you know, where he could sort of um, lean into his previous career as a preacher and his, his very strong Christian convictions, which he shares with many people in South Africa. Uh, that's another market that's not being tapped into at the moment. You know, I think the ACDP is there, 
but it's not really making a very strong showing in activating that vertical group. Maybe Musi Maimane will do it. Yeah, that's a very interesting idea, sort of an ACDP 2.0. But yes. um, I, I recently saw an article uh, article in the City Press, uh, City Press, sorry, about Helen Ziller. Um, the um, journalist wrote that Helen Ziller is a liability towards the DA because she tends to focus on um, identity politics and uh, tweets about colonialism. It's hampering the DA's ability to grow. Do you think that's the case? Because interesting, interestingly, I saw this morning an interview on Newsport, an Afrikaans um, station where she said that she is actually more popular than the Democratic Alliance and many internal polling, especially amongst black South Africans. So what do you think is Selen Zilla's appeal to South Africans? Is she more popular than the Democratic Alliance? You know, we did polling on the favorability of political leaders, but unfortunately we didn't ask about Helen Ziller. And um, we asked about the leaders of parties, uh, you know, current leaders of parties, but I think she's probably right. And I think that uh, the point that Mondi Makanya made in City Press is a figment of the press's imagination. It is very widely reported and, you know, repeated over and over again, how terrible Helen Ziller is, what a liability she is. I don't think that's true. I think she is um, strategically very astute she is uh, one of the smartest people I've met ever. Um, and I think she is, she's not, not a warm and fuzzy, cuddly kind of person. And so I think, you know, it's, it's easy to dismiss her and say, no, how, how did she ever make it as a politician? Because she's not, you know, the charismatic, baby kissing, handshaking kind of guy, uh, or sort of politician. <laughs> but, um, but she is very smart. She's a very strong leader. She's got a, a very good profile. And I also think that, the polling results that she mentioned, which I haven't seen for myself, are probably true. If you go out and you ask a representative sample of South Africans, firstly, do you know who Helen Ziller is? Many of them will say, yes, of course I know who Helen Ziller is. And if you ask them, what do you think of Helen Ziller? Many of them will say, she's very strong. You know, she's very fierce. She's very outspoken. She's got clear views. And I like that in a politician. So I think she probably is much more favorably viewed by voters and by the, um, the broader public than by the media and the uh, commentariat. Yeah, and no, I, yeah. I can definitely think that's the case. Um, but okay, you mentioned in 2024 that the ANC can fall below 50%. So is it too early to start talking about President John Stiernosen? Um <laughs> That's quite a provocative question. Um, so the first question is, is it too, too early to start speaking about the DA losing power? And I think it's not too early for that. Um, you know, I think that is a realistic prospect now. And um, more and more people, I think, are buying into this idea. Um, I forget, somebody wrote in the Sunday papers an article on uh, Cyril Ramaphosa being the last ANC president of South Africa. So this idea is gaining traction. Um, whether John Stienhausen will be the president, uh, I don't know if the country is ready. Um, so I think, you know, it, it might be that a coalition where the DA is the largest party manages to take down the ANC below 50 uh, and, you know, constitute a government. I half suspect that uh, somebody else might be made president, uh, but with uh, John Steenhuisen in a very prominent position. That's a, that's a tough call. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, that's interesting. And it would be very ironic, sort of ironic, that after all these years of democratic elections, that the first person after the ANC will be a white male to be the president of South Africa. Um, yes. That would be the narrative uh, would be quite something on that. Yeah. Um, but OK, so it, it might be very chaotic 
after 2024 and we see some of that chaos now playing out, is it possible that the ANC can come back and say, okay, you have chaos, but at least you had some degree of stability with us. So vote for us again. So is there a possibility that they can make a comeback with that argument? So I think there's two ways for the ANC to come back. Um, and, and one I think is almost impossible and the other one is possible. The impossible way is for the ANC to regain its majorities um, and sort of, you know, on, on the strength of its arguments, persuade voters to return to it. And one of those arguments could be, uh, you know, chaos is terrible. The ANC is the guarantor of stability. Vote ANC. I don't think that is going to be enough. The ANC would need to add to that. Plus, we created jobs. Plus, we fixed ESCOM. Plus, you know, we, we showed that we were able to run the country properly. And I'm not seeing any chances of that happening. Um, I think the ANC is too weak at the moment, um, too demoralized, and also too bereft of ideas to be able to do something like that. So I think that route is closed to the ANC. The way in which it might get back in, uh, would be through a coalition. So one option is that it drops below 50, but goes into coalition with the EFF or some other parties, or maybe even uh, with the, this wild dog coalition that some of the better parts of that of the ANC might abandon the rotten parts, which are very, very large, and throw in its lot with the, with the wild dogs and say, look, you know, we really want to make things work, uh, get things working again. We're going to join you in the, the DA, the Action SA, the Freedom Front, the IFP, all those parties, and we're going to try to work something out and we're going to abandon the rotten rest of the ANC. That is possible. You know, I think no, no opposition politician would countenance that at the moment, um, but yeah, give it two, three years. Let's see where we go. Maybe by then the ANC will be in a different shape than it is now. The, the problem also probably with that argument is there's so much chaos in South Africa at this very moment, like you just saw with the Ju July riots. So it's difficult to make that argument. Um, but do you think the ANC and EFF would want to go into a coalition with each other? Because I, I think you've mentioned in a CRA video that it's not very politically astute of either one of them to want to do that. So yeah, what's your opinion on that? Because it has long been the default interpretation of, of uh, where where the EFF goes and say you know, it belongs back with the ANC. It has presumably been uh, Julius Malema's plan all along to say, you know, let's get to the point where I get invited back in and concessions are made, uh, which I want, um, and then I'll be able to exercise power. But I wonder if the time frame is not getting a bit too long for this to work out. Um, the EFF uh, built its reputation, I think, on being disruptive and um, being noisy in the public sphere. It's been doing that now for nine years, I think. Um, and I think the, the, getting a bit tired, you know, so what else do you offer apart from disruption? And the voters, as we saw in these local government elections, there are some that vote for the EFF, but they're not really breaking through that 10% barrier properly, which is interesting because if you think of South Africa, you know, we've got sky high unemployment, or terrible poverty, we've got no growth, people are getting poorer. So really the, the, the ground is ripe for a socialist message where you say, you know, this inequality is unbearable, this poverty is unbearable. We need the state to take charge, to redistribute, to make life better for everything, for everyone, sorry. So compelling message and the ground is really ripe. Plus you've got the EFF, which is led by South Africa's most strategically astute politician in the form of Julius Malema, who is charismatic, who is a branding genius, who's got the red thing down, he's got the red beret, he's got the revolution, revolutionary talk, the revolutionary poses. So you've got the perfect conditions for this to work and still they can't break through the 10%. And why not? 
I think partly it is because South Africans are actually quite sensible and moderate, most of them, and actually, you know, think they, they see through this and they think, well, I'm actually not so sure that's going to work. <laughs> I want proper policies that will produce growth and jobs and a, a decent outcome for me and my family. You know, it's, that's real um, breakfast table issues that, that people are interested in. So don't you also think it's because he's somewhat tainted with corruption? And I believe a lot of mm -hmm. South Africans, that's the number one. If, if you're seen as corrupt, that's uh, the best way to shy a voter away from you. I think voters are actually not that put off by corruption. Um, so, you know, they're critical of it. But I think there's some truth to the argument that this um, hurts the EFF's prospects. Not so much because corruption is seen as, as um, unacceptable, but because the EFF is seen as, as being not credible. In other words, you might consider, you know, you, you, you sort of got the news about the EFF having been involved with the VBS banking scandal and being involved in corruption when it gets the chance. And of course, the more power it gets, the more chances it gets. And you wonder, you know, if a, if a billionaire were, were to come along and say to Julius Malema, look, dude, I'll give you $100 million. I'll buy you an island, the Caribbean, if you just promise to go there and stay there. Is he going to say no? Is, how committed is he to the revolution? And you say, well, he likes Gucci. He likes Prada. He likes the finer things in life. So, you know, he's probably corruptible. You can be bought off. So do you, are you going to trust him as the leader of the revolution? He might say, no, he's not credible. So it's very entertaining watching him. I'll you know, go to his rallies. Maybe I'll vote for him now and then just as a lark, but I don't really think that this is the guy who's going to bring the revolution. So it's the credibility problem plus the target market problem, I think, which the EFF has got. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting argument you made. It's corruption. The problem of corruption, it's more of the same. And yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's, you can imagine why a voter would be put off of that. But mm -hmm. uh, the last question, I mean, it's been a fascinating conversation. The last question I want to ask you is about this um, push by the ANC and Ramaphosa to create smart cities, which is quite an interesting development, right? I mean, we were supposed, to, I believe we were supposed to have a bullet train by now, but I don't know what happened to that bullet train. But um, why do you think they are pushing this? Why do they want smart cities? Is it just an opportunity to steal once more? What is the drive behind this? I think it is delusional. Um, and I think it is you know, very easy to make fun of this. Um, but unfortunately, the consequences are very real because this delusion of, um, of grandeur that is displayed in plans like this is reflected in much smaller projects as well. The uh, ANC believes that it is capable of affecting changes that it can't. Um, so it is, it is actually a terrible thing to see. I think it's completely unrealistic. And the reason to do it is uh, to, to divert attention and to pretend that you know what you're doing and that there is a bright, bright prospect and a bright future out there in the midst of 44% unemployment, in the midst of poverty, in the midst of railway tracks being stolen, you paint a picture of bullet trains and smart cities. I think it is ludicrous. But isn't it also following a sort of trend? Because you see the same sort of arguments being made, I believe, in countries like India and East African countries. They are doing the same thing. And don't they want to emulate that? Sort of, okay, we can, they mm. can do it, we can do it as well. I think that's true. So, I mean, there, there's a certain... Uh, type of ambition underlying it as well, I think. Um, but, you know, the talk of the fourth industrial revolution falls into the same category, where you say, you know, the, the whole world is talking about this and about connected devices and the internet of things and everything will be networked and linked and your milk will call you on your cell phone when it's about to go off to remind you to buy some fresh milk and that sort of thing. That is not where we are as a country. You know, we are not producing enough maths graduates. We're not producing enough university students in coding, IT, engineering, 
you know, technology, mathematics, science, and so on, to make that even vaguely possible. Um, I think it will be possible in very sort of small areas. Um, you know, we are very much a divided society where many people are very poor, but some people are very rich. Um, and those rich people, yeah, sure, they'll have all those inter interconnected devices. They'll have a bit of the fourth industrial revolution. But as a country, um, we are very far removed from that. We, you know, we don't even have electricity or reliable electricity, at least. So no, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, no, definitely. We're not sticking to issues that matter. But John, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a fascinating interview. I want to give you one last opportunity if you want to add, plug, or say anything that you want to. Two things, Donald. Um, the first is that I realized that I didn't answer one of your questions, which was the one about the ANC and the EFF going together. And um, so I think I got halfway through my explanation where I said this was sort of the, the standard explanation of what we expect to happen. But there are strong arguments why you might think it won't happen. And the way to visualize this is that it's the morning of 2024. You're in the results center in Midrand looking at the elections scores coming in, trickling in, and the ANC realizes for the first time in a national election, it is below 50%. And now the general secretary has to pick up the phone and call some other parties to try to build a majority. And he's got the choice of all the parties. Is the EFF going to be the first party that he calls? because he knows that the EFF is a very dangerous party, ruthless, very smart, much smarter than you know, the cabinet colleagues possibly within the ANC. And he knows if he picks up that phone, if he brings the EFF in, they'll eat him for breakfast. You know, before, before you know it, the cabinet colleagues will be accused of corruption, they'll be locked up within a month, the ANC will be eviscerated, and the EFF will run the show. Are those the people you want to strike a deal with? So from the ANC's perspective, this is very, very risky. And um, you know, if they have any sense, they will think very carefully about whether to do that or not. And from the EFF's perspective, let's say they do get the call from the ANC saying, guys, you know, come join a government with us, it'll be great. The EFF will say, well, you've just dropped below 50%. Your trend is only going one way, that is down. Are we going to tie ourselves to the sinking ship to be pulled down to the ocean ground, to the ocean floor? Not a good idea. We'll, we'll rather do our own thing. We've got a brand, we've got a message. We know what we want. We're strategically clear. We're not going to go get into bed with this mess that is the ANC. So I think both of them have reasons not to go together. Plus, the ANC, you know, if it just drops a couple of percentage points below 50, has lots of options. You know, it can give a call to the UDM, it can call Action SA, it can call the IFP, it can call COPE, the PA, good. You know, there's lots, lots of options. The EFF is not necessarily the best one. So I think that scenario is not that probable. I hope I'm right because it is a very bad scenario if those two get in bed together. Um, but on the other hand, if they did get into bed together, they would probably also go down together. Um, you, you know, the, the buffalo and its calf would expire at the same time. But still, I hope that doesn't happen. Um, and then the second point is uh, the inv invitation to maybe just mention uh, the work that we do. Um, so uh, the organization is the Institute of Race Relations but we also run an online newspaper called Daily Friend. And that is the thing that I would like to invite listeners to come check out, dailyfriend.co.za. Uh, we publish uh, news and analysis, and it's a, it's a very good place to get your information, I think. Well, John, great. Uh, great. Thank you so much for your time. And yeah, also add to that ANC point that they should never forget that they are perhaps a 46% party. And if they made a coalition with the EFF, they might become a 10% party. They should always keep that in mind, right? That 
exactly. the other party has a 10 percent they have the 46 percent and they have the potential of losing that but thank you so much for your time to our viewers you've most certainly enjoyed this content if you made it this far please consider liking this video subscribing and donating on patreon my name is donald and you've been watching worldview